I don't know. And now coming to the Grossman's room, high above the Cooch Street Mirtle Sticks, it's Charles Australian Gary K. Wolf on the Cooch Street Podcast. Not really sure we've got an episode, but let's try. Was that an introduction? Was that the beginning of a podcast? (laughs) It was. We're going to waffle for another half an hour if we keep doing this. I've got editing. We probably will. I've got a new microphone. Look at this. Look at this. That's beautiful. I mean, I can't, our listeners can't see this. Does it sound better? Uh, about the same to me, but my hearing shot, so what would I know? Well, that's, okay, that's very cool. impressive. You've got that snowball mic that I used to have. It's a snowball that you used to have, and I borrowed one from uh, Paul Levinson, I think, oh, at well, one point. And it's, it's, it's cute. It is. Uh, and I, to see it. It's like Gary's got his own radar dish, people. Right. Because he's sitting there with a big spit shield. Are you likely to like spray red wine all over it or something? No, it's not a spit shield. It's a pop shield. It's a pop filter or whatever it is. What so, the, and, and it, it, my partner Dale got this on some deal, and supposedly the pop shield keeps you from popping your P's and D's and things, so you don't get that explosive sound that you yeah. do when I do it. Um, not. Not that I've ever noticed anybody doing it. Uh, paprikash. Paprikash, that kind of thing. Uh, so so I, I feel technologically more competent than I did a week ago. Fantastic. Well done, you. Well done, that man. So welcome to the Paprikash show of science fiction. I think we should probably put off... I'm not going to do any more peas. <laughs> let's, just, let's, just, let's just give up the alliteration business. <laughs> no, No more... Sibilant sentences, Gary? Um, it's, it's possible for that sort of thing to get out of hand. There is a writer who we both like and admire a great deal who has written a story that is anno- it's, it's, it's ingenious in its degree of alliteration, but it's ingenious for about a page and a half. <laughs> After which... You're saying, turn off this Muzak. I know what the point is. I don't need to see any more of it. I'm very impressed at the te- technical facility behind this sort of thing. You mean if you're a, a clever, the clever clogs does it. No, no, exactly. There's a, there, there's a sense of, um, and this is very much less the case in science fiction than in other kinds of fiction, but there is a sense of showing off of technical prowess of I know how to do this and I'm going to do it which is great I have no problem with it I think that's great for poetry especially but with prose once you've once you've proved that you need to have that you know how to do it you don't need to go on with that particular yeah, okay. style that particular story yes um, there are writers who get away with it uh, I think who've gotten away with it um, but only in short fiction, and only for limited amounts of time. <clears throat> One of the books I've been reading um, is Joe Walton's Informal History of the Hugos, which is basically a collection of her columns for Tor.com from, I think, 2010 to 2013 or something like that, yeah, something like that uh, yeah. with, with various responses. Mostly the mostly responses are from our much-missed Gardner Dozois and our locust colleague, Rich Horton, uh, all of whom have far better memories than I do uh, about these sorts of things. And one of the points that uh, gets made in talking mostly about the short fiction, I mean, Joe's own columns tend to focus on the novels, but Gardner and Rich talk about the short fiction. And it's interesting to look at the work, at the early work of somebody 
uh, like Harlan Ellison, specifically a story like I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Yeah. It's, it's set at the beginning at a screeching level of uh, intense emotion. And the first time I've had people read this story who've never read another science fiction story, and they are devastated by it. It's an incredibly powerful story the first time out. Um, when you read it again and reread it, and you read other short stories of Harlan's that are more or less pitched at the same level, you begin to realize um, it's a good thing these things are short stories. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes bravura technique is best seen briefly, you know, uh, and that's probably most true in my experience when reading postmodern uh, experiments in literature, where something can be very effective for a couple of pages, but, you know, sort of 700 pages of it would have you just about gouging your own eyes out. And yet it's, it's not always true, because I mean, after all, although it's not exactly what you're talking about, Dahlgren, you know, Samuel Blaney's novel, has an mm-hmm. aspect of that. And yet, that's something which you can immerse yourself in, or which many people immerse themselves in. I immerse myself in it as well. And there are, there are novels like that. Uh, another example, not like Dahlgren, but in a, in a different dimension, is uh, Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker, which is extremely annoying to read until you get into the rhythm of that prose yeah. and to the and sound of that and, and, and yeah, and after a while, I, I think what happened with Dahlgren is you have to let yourself get immersed in a novel like that. Mm. Um, and if, if you don't, you're going to bounce off of it. I know any number of people who would love to have finished Ridley Walker or would love to have finished Dahlgren and simply couldn't get into it. And other people who have said, this book changed my life. I was completely involved in it. I was. Uh, 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 it's just a matter of how much. When do you decide to bounce off a book, I guess, is the question we're asking. Are we? Okay. I have an arbitrary rule of thumb, which is 100 pages, which probably doesn't mean a lot if the book's only 150 pages long. I I, I guess there's just a point about a quarter of the way in where you're hoping you have, you've hit a rhythm and you stop thinking about the fact that you're reading it and you're fully engaged and intrigued. So really, I guess the, the proper question is, what's the point at which you lose that initial interest that has you pick it up? But, and the book has failed to intrigue you enough to keep going. Sometimes it's not very far at all. I mean, I can think of books that have made, haven't made it past the one or two chapter tests. You know, where you're 20, 15 pages in, you're going, I'm just not reading that. Mm-hmm. And that happens probably more than, you know, it used to, but, you know, because I can now afford to have bought a book and not read it. But um, I, I guess it's when, when it fails to get you on some level... And the issue there is it can be any one of a number of levels. There's no set technique. It's going to be very infuriating for novelists because... It, 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 it can be, be, and I have to... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go, go ahead and finish your thought. Just, it could be character, it could be plot, it could be whatever else it is, but there's a certain point where you wear out your initial welcome. I think that's true, and I think it, it varies according to under what circumstances you're reading the book. For example, when I'm reading... Uh, Books for an, an award, the, 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 the two experiences, okay, one of the worst experiences of my life, and you've been through it too, was reading for the World Fantasy Award, because you get to read a lot of great books, but you get a ton of books sent to you by somebody in the mailroom who's picking them out, and for something like that, where I think, okay, I've got 150 books or something, something out there, maybe a page is enough to 
say, I'm not going to go anywhere with this. Uh, maybe a chapter will be, but I'm not going to go 150 pages into each book no. to see if it works. Well, I mean, I, we've talked about this before. That it, it all comes down to the, 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 the barrier that the book has to get over or the story has to get over because mm-hmm. if you've picked up something up casually to read for pleasure, well, it just has to be kind of engaging enough. I've read some books which are equivalent, you know, the equivalent of a, you know, might watch TV. It's the kind of thing where I'm kind of enjoying this. I can, I'll keep going. I've got nothing else to do in my time. That's okay. I've been on holidays somewhere, picked up a book, and it's been great. Oh, yeah. When you're reading for awards, you're reading a winner. Every single book you re- read has to be the winner. And if it's not within 5% of the book, whatever it might be, then that's that. Because that, that's the barrier it has to kind of get over. It's got to be the winner, not just a book you enjoyed reading for a while. Well, one of the things, yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, wasn't all just Budras who, who basically said reviewers are, are, are investment counselors. That, I guess it was Heinlein originally said that we're competing with readers for their beer money. Uh, so to some extent, the idea of the hook, the, the kind of classic pulp uh, kind of writing, which it's demeaning to call it pulp because people like, uh, Heinlein and Asimov, and people up to today, uh, including everybody from, who knows, Joe Abercrombie to Stan Robinson, knows how to hook you into a book uh, in the yeah. first few pages. Uh, so that's not a difficult thing to do. Sustaining it is something else. There have been any number of novels. Um, uh, there's a recent novel uh, by Claire North, as a matter of fact, 84K, which I've not finished. And I've not finished because it's badly written. In fact, it's very well written. It has a very interesting hook toward the beginning, yeah. which then segues into some stylistic experimentation that seems to put the book on hold while we do these stylistic things, and then we'll get back to you in a few chapters, which I'm sure she will, and I'm sure the book probably is fine. But I've not finished it because I feel like that particular hook was, was being honored in the following two or three chapters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I've, I find that I've not read obviously, obviously not read 84K and I've certainly mm-hmm. read good reviews of it but I have picked up books lately uh, novella length books whatever else where I've been left wondering what the point of it all is at the beginning and the point where I know that I'm enjoying a book that I think it's great whether or not proves to, you know, to the world to be great or not the point where I, I know it's great is when I stop thinking about the fact that I'm reading a book yeah, and, I, and I'm just lost in, in I'm just with it, and it's no longer that oh gosh I am reading this book and I'm ten percent of the way through, oh I'm at the fifty page mark oh this is chapter three oh look there's still six hundred pages to go I must go and kill myself, um, and then it's just like what's happening what's this what are they doing what what are the ideas what's the something's intrigued you, you know and you keep keep rolling on so yeah. Well, and and, and there are writers who are brilliant at doing that even though it may not in the end, make the novel the most successful in the world. My, my best example of somebody who can keep me reading, even though I know there are 900 pages to go, is Neil Stevenson. Because chapter by chapter, he pulls out every stop of the thriller writer. He writes uh, cliffhanger endings and chapters. He has digressions, which are in some cases more fascinating than the narrative they're digressing from. Um, and I think that kind of thing works if you can bring it off. 
um, if you can't bring it off, then you th- th- then you have the situation which I have when I'm reading something, especially on a Kindle. And I look at the bottom because you can't find pages on a Kindle. That's supposedly there's a way to do that, but I don't know how. And I'll, 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 I'll look at the percentage that you're through. That's enough. Well, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, I've, I've been reading forever, and I look at the bottom of the page, and I'm 11% of the way through. My God, what am I going to do now? <laughs> I can't even – and you can't flip pages to the back of the book. This is one of the reasons I like physical books. I just want to get a physical sense of where I am in it. Um, but the, the, can I tell you the I've not finished I, the Neil Stevenson books in Cryptonomicon? Um, I've okay. I will say that I've finished. I think all of them since Cryptonomicon, not and one. I've not I've not failed to be entertained by them, even when there are egregious uh, plot developments, as there are, for example, in his blowing up the Earth. Uh, what was that one? Um, uh, was that uh, Anathem? No, no. Read me. Um, seven. No, Aves? the one after Seven Eves. Seven Eves. Uh, seven Eves is patently absurd on many levels, and yet gripping uh, almost all the way through. Except it, it, there's a second novel appended to the first one, which doesn't work as well. But by and large, Read Me or Reemdi or however you pronounce it is an, a hugely bloated spy novel. But it's a good bloated spy novel. Sentence by sentence, pa- paragraph by paragraph, a lot of stuff uh, in it is, is, is frankly silly. But it's, it kept me reading. I didn't expect to be kept reading because it's not very science fictionally invented. Um, it's it's, it's, it's a, a little bit as though, uh, I don't know, John Le Carre had turned into a dirigible. This reader perished partway through the system of the world. I love the system of the world, actually. <laughs> I, know, I know people who did. Char- uh, Charles loved it. I mean, you know, so. But we, we're waffling. We haven't got to any substantive podcast yet, Gary. Isn't anything happening in science fiction? Well, one of the things uh, that I'm involved in now is, is reading. There's something going on in England called the Arthur C. Clarke Award, which has been going on. And it's always been an interesting award because it's always been a little bit different from the Hugos, the Nebulas, the kinds of awards, that uh, the Campbell Awards uh, that, that we see in the United States. This year, uh, and, and a couple of years ago, I'm sure I'm permitted to say this, uh, some British critics, uh, including Maureen Kincaid-Speller and Helen Marshall and some others, uh, decided to shadow the yeah. Clark jury. And apparently this is a thing in Europe, and it's apparently a thing in uh, the UK in particular where if there's going to be a jury of um, people determining, for example, the Man Booker Prize, another group will follow the same set of readings and arrive at their own conclusions. The purpose of this is, I'm not sure what the purpose of this is, uh, but it's, 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 it's sort of fun. It's Isn't interesting. Isn't it keeping the bastards honest? Isn't it supposed um, to be like, hey, well, what do we think? I, I don't know if I don't know if there was any sense of distrust behind it. That's not, when I was no, invited no, to this. Just, I just, just as, a, as a, a metric of assessing, like, well, how good are these books? There's all these other books in the world. How good are these books that have been shortlisted and that are going to you know, from which the, the winner will be picked? I think that's true, and I think I think this is probably more true of juried awards than it is of uh, um, popular vote awards, like like the Hugo's, for example. So, to some extent, there's a sense of 
you have a group of five judges, and I don't remember who the five judges are for the actual Clark Awards. Dave Hutchinson is one. And then you've Charles got Christian, this Paul, other March Russell, Kari Mond, Gay Seabold, with Andrew Butler as the chairman. Very good. And Andrew Butler, I don't believe, votes on these things. He just administers them. Mm -hmm. um, so the obvious question is, why do these people get to make this choice? And let's find another group, an alternate group of critics or readers or novelists. Uh, and I can't remember exactly who's on the, the, the group that I'm on. And we're going to monitor this, not with the idea of keeping them honest, I don't think, but with the idea of there's an alternate way of reading these books. In other words, we were not asked uh, uh, in this group, which Helen Marshall is administering this year, we were not asked to come up with our own shortlist. No. Uh, we were basically, we are being asked to read all the books that are on the shortlist, which are by and large books that have had, as far as I can tell, almost zero impact in the United States. And I don't well, know what I the mean, impact Well, that, that's, that's not totally true. Born by Jeff Vandermeer is very popular. Well, Born is very popular. And Sea of Rust by Robert Cargill actually got quite a lot of noise at one point. Uh, and I think he's got a short story collection just about to land. But the others, and the yes, others I'm, I hear less about. Um, well, yes, and and, uh, and some of them, like I say, the the. Let me let me look very quickly. Um, uh, I'm 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 reading American War by Omar El Akkad, which is a very well written book. Got very uh, strong mainstream coverage both in the UK and here. I don't know if it was reviewed much in the science fiction media at all when it came out. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that was uh, Dreams Before the Start of Time got much attention. Uh, Spaceman of Bohemia uh, by Yaroslav Kalfar. Um, I frankly hadn't heard of most of these until the, I, I actually had a copy of Dreams Before the Start of Time. But my point is that there seems to be this um, uh, pattern of, of non-science fiction, science fiction, of science fiction which is uh, usually... Uh, published as literary fiction, usually has extremely strong literary qualities based on what I've read so far, <clears throat> and sometimes unfairly generates resentment among science fiction readers, uh, especially veteran science fiction readers like our friend Charles, who says, who will say, well, this, this idea has been regurgitated for 50 years. Why is this book doing it again, and why should we pay attention to it? On the one hand, that's a legitimate question. On the other hand, it's, I think, fair to say that a Doris Lessing or a Margaret Atwood is probably, sentence by sentence and chapter by chapter and character by character, a better writer than Wilson Tucker, for example. That, that, well, I wouldn't you know, single out Mr. Tucker, but sure, I, I take your point in principle. I guess what well, I... Well, the reason I singled out... I'm going to mention I, I singled out Tucker for a particular reason. He had written in The Long, Loud Silence an extremely grim and extremely powerful dystopian tale that is echoed in later dystopian tales by some of the writers I've mentioned. Uh, as early 50s science fiction, it was extraordinarily powerful. As a as a novel by today's standards, it, it, it pales in comparison to something like The Handmaid's Tale. Sure, of course. Well, lots of things would pale by comparison with that. Well, yes. But I guess the, the, the question that lies at the, the basis of what you're talking about, is there something that makes these mainstream science fiction novels 
less or more interesting than their science fiction predecessors. And there's an implication from within the field, at least, that they're less interesting, that they don't do anything new with the idea or whatever else. Though I would probably guess that that's not their goal. They're not, they're not, they were, they're not science fiction novels in the way that I would imagine Paul Kincaid would look at a science fiction novel. They're not interested in expanding the science fictional conversation about the particular subject that they've landed on. What they are instead is their science fiction coming out of, out of the cultural ether in a different place. You know, we now live in a very different world than we did 70 years ago. The, um, the, the, the pervasiveness of science fiction and science fictional thinking is so you know, all-encompassing in popular culture that you're seeing people write mainstream novels that have that science fictional aspect to them without ever really intending to be, from our point of view, science fiction novels, even though they are undeniably so. I think that's true, and I think it's uh, it's probably something we ought to regard as a as a salutary development rather than uh, an invasion. Which is, uh, at, at times in the past it's looked like an invasion. At times there are best-selling writers who will just adapt a, a science fiction trope and go with it. And this could, this could include the Michael Crichtons and the Robin Cooks and the James Patterson. But on the other hand, the idea of uh, using a science fiction setting for a novel that otherwise is essentially a novel of character, a novel that has all kinds of traditional themes. And in other words, you want to write essentially a traditional novel in terms of all the traditional values, character, plot, motivation, uh, theme, and so forth and so on. And you find, or um, increasingly, these writers are finding that a kind of science fiction, or more often than not, frankly, post-apocalyptic setting, is a useful way of approaching that. Uh, so that you and, and and some of these writers actually did know their way around science fiction before they started doing it. Doris yeah. Lessing read science fiction. Michael Chabon, Jonathan Lethem, uh, Karen Russell, I think, uh, knew her way around science fiction. So they're not doing it in ignorance. They're doing it because of um, it's the easy. It, it, it's possibly the most effective way to tell the story they want to tell. Parallel thing probably happened. I know nothing about Western readers. I don't know if they're organized. I don't know if they're Western Hugos. They probably are. But when Cormac McCarthy started writing Westerns, way back before he quote-unquote invaded science fiction, he was writing things like Blood Meridian that were, by most generic definition, Western novels. Hmm. But they didn't partake of any of the conventions, or very few of the conventions of Western novels. They used the setting, they used time period, they used characters. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that McCarthy wanted to write these extremely dark, bloody, violent, grim tales, and the American West was the appropriate setting for them. And it was also a setting that he knew about. I think something the same thing is going on with these writers who are now using uh, science fiction ideas. On the other hand, the criticism could be made that they all use the same science fiction ideas. You're not going to find one of these novels, none, none of the novels... Uh, that are on this Clark Award shortlist, for example, none of the novels that get uh, reviewed as mainstream novels are going to take place on a generation starship. No, not like they're, they're, they're not going. They're, they're not going to venture too far into science fiction. No, no, they're not. Well, that well, in in fairness, quite often what we're assessing as science fiction is also logical extrapolation or fictional extrapolation from what's around us. I mean, if you live in 
21st century Earth, if you look on 21st century Earth, it's not a big thing to look around and see a poss possible dystopian outcomes from climate change or to have stories that are driven by climate change. That, after all, is what's driving cultural narrative right now. You know, I think so, that's true. And so I think it's, it's utterly explicable. I mean, I think the kind of vacationing bestseller writer that, we, that you know, Charles used to object to is, is right. largely a thing of the past. And sometimes I'm not sure it was ever that fairly or well considered anyway, because we now warm to Margaret Atwood and we see her as having had a solid link to science fiction and all that sort of thing. But it's wow. also true that for a good chunk of time, she was seen by those within the field as being a bestseller writer vacationing in science fiction. Well, her case is unusual because she was an extremely important literary writer who also wrote bestsellers. There are very few people in that category. Um, I suppose Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, if, if Joyce Carol Oates were to write a straight-out science fiction novel, I don't think people would think she's rating us because she's written gothic novels, she's edited Lovecraft anthologies. Mm -hmm. She knows her way around horror fiction, at least, uh, which is the area that she's more likely to, uh, to approach. So, so there's a sense of treating an idea with respect. What I found um, annoying in earlier uh, writers from uh, Paul Theroux to Michael Crichton was the, well, stupid appropriation of science fiction ideas, frankly. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> and I, I think that can be done badly. I think there are, I'm sure, uh, it's impossible to keep up with teenage dystopias at this point. Uh, sure. the, ones, the ones I've come across, including The Hunger Games, seem to be pretty good. I did not read... The Fifth Wave. I did not read the Stephanie uh, Meyer. No, not Stephanie Meyer. The uh, the emergence. No, not, not emergence. What, 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 what? This 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 like nineteen year old Northwestern University student started writing these novels, which oh, uh, became Veronica Roth, maybe Veronica Roth. Thank you. I've not read Veronica Roth. Um, all these strike me as being deeply felt cries of uh, adolescent anguish, which must be really, really powerful to the people, to the target audience. Um, Probably so I not. don't want to, I, I don't have to complain about them. Uh, I suspect they're very... <laughs> it sounds like you're complaining about them. I'm complaining about them, but I'm admitting I haven't read them either. I, I admit I tried to read, this is sort of slipping off into another genre, I tried to read Twilight several years ago. Mm -hmm. And I got a couple of chapters in, and I my my impression was this is a fairly convincing uh, setting. Uh, this is a town in Washington. The atmosphere, the weather, the sort of landscape of Washington is fine. This is what a high school in Washington State could could be like. And then as soon as a vampire showed up, I fell asleep. <laughs> It is not as though Stephanie Meyer was incapable of writing well, though she may be, I don't know, but she chose instead to go in the direction of a very specific formula. I think that's what some of these bestseller writers invading science fiction, fantasy, horror, or invading westerns, for that matter, are doing. Other writers, the ones we're talking about now, the ones that are interesting, uh, the ones that range from, uh, uh, I don't know, Margaret Atwood to Juno Diaz, for example, 
really seem to, or, or, or Doris Lessing, really seem to want to do it right. They, yeah. When they think of science fiction ideas, they don't want to violate the terms of the genre, uh, and they don't want to exploit the terms of the genre. They simply find it as the most effective way to tell the story they want to tell. Let me ask you this question. You've, you're reading for the Shadow Clark Award. The, Clarks award, the Clark Awards are presented in four or five weeks' time. You have to read six books. How many of them have you read so far, can I ask? Um, one and a half. One and a half. So it's a little early to, to, to make any generalizations about the kind of book that is being you know, nominated for or shortlisted for it. Would that be fair? I think it's true, yes. Let me ask you this, though, and it's, 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 it's not 100% irrelevant to the, the topic. Why is it now, do you think, in an age when... Everything is so physically, well, physical distances are overcome by technology so easily. Why is it, right. do you still think that non-North American science fiction struggles to make an impact on the North American science fiction market? Well, by non-North American, are you including British and Australian yes. and Irish? Uh, uh, part, part of the issue, it seems to me, reading these books, many of which I had not heard about, uh, is that they appear in the United States a year after they appeared uh, in, in the UK sure. or someplace. So, so that, that means that there's a, a, a certain degree of flying under the radar. Uh, by the time we get a book, for example, uh, by the time I'm looking at these books, I couldn't review these books really for Locus because they, they're over a year old. Um, and I didn't see them when they came out. Well, but, so, see, but that's, so that's, not, that's not that's not so because after all, the the locus rule is that I mean, as I recall it, is that it, you can uh, review based on an American edition, particularly if a book has got some significance to it. Right, that's true. Um, but in terms of being, I'm not talking about writing reviews. I'm talking about being aware of a book. Sure. Uh, that it, it's by the, by the time an American edition comes out, sometimes it's huge. When obviously, when Harry Potter the first volume gets retitled for the American edition and it in some small way was retranslated for American audiences. That's a huge event. Most books that are initially published uh, in Australia or the UK or Hong Kong or Singapore, or I'm thinking of, uh, of, of Zen Cho's first collection of stories, for example. Yeah. Most of those, by the time they show up in the United States, are, um, are old news unless they get a lot of promotion behind them. And by and large, reprint books don't get a lot of promotion behind them. See, I feel like I understand the process that leads to books like, say, Zen Cho's collection not mm -hmm. making the impact that it might. And it's largely because it comes from an independent or small publisher that doesn't have the marketing and the distribution to really get that book out to a broader readership, irrespective mm -hmm. of the actual merits of the book. This isn't about the merits of those books. But... There are a lot of books that are published within the genre around the world in English mm -hmm. uh, from major publishers within those markets, not you know independent books and books which are available in ebook, books which are discussed and yet somehow and books which are award winners in their respective yeah. countries, which somehow still don't get traction in the United States. Writers, well, we've puzzled about this about the whole writing careers. Paul McCauley has never really had the impact that the quality of his work deserves within the United States. Uh, Stephen Baxter hasn't. Um, That's true. Dave Hutchinson isn't. 
Gwyneth Jones absolutely certainly has not, even though, I mean, David Hartwell, you know, championed her, her work and other people have. So there's something in this work that, that goes, I think, beyond, beyond just sales and distribution that stops it getting it through some kind of barrier it, you know, into the awareness of the science fictional reading, science fiction reading community. I've wondered about uh, the, the exact writers you've talked about for, for a long time. Stephen Baxter, it seemed to me, had a more successful career in the United States than he does now. Uh, and I, don't, I didn't see The Massacre of Mankind as having nearly the impact of, of some of his earlier novels, um, like Evolution, uh, in, in the States. Um, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to think that that's because American readers are that chauvinistic, that we don't want to read people from other uh, countries, because there are obviously people like Ian McDonald very well in the States, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, then I wonder, you know, like, is it then the type of story you're telling? I mean, why is it that a, a Luna by Ian McDonald does really well? And I believe that, you know, the books that he did immediately before that, the ones that started off at Pyre and then went elsewhere. Uh, Brazil and... Uh, yeah. yeah. That they also, you know, did quite well. But then there was a period where, you know, he, the novels didn't. They didn't even get an English edition or American editions at all. And there's a whole bunch of very talented uh, British writers, mm-hmm. particularly that come to mind. Though I know that there are, as you say, Singaporean and... Australian and Hong Kong writers and people from South Africa, a whole bunch of South Africa and parts of Africa who yeah. don't get the kind of attention that they deserve. I mean, we probably should be talking about the fact that Tade Thompson's novel is about to get released and it's big, it's big U.S. edition, you know, and will that get the kind of traction that it plainly deserves? And there, you know, there are others, you know. Uh, when Tati Went West came out, Earlier mm-hmm. this year, I don't know that it got the kind of traction, and I may have missed it because of where, where I tend to pay attention. But I think it's like it got the kind of traction that you might have expected. And I, I wonder as to, as to what that is. What is it that, that makes it possible for a British science fiction fan to be immersed in the Europe series, you know, fractured Europe series from Dave Hutchinson, and yet for them to appear yeah. to be largely unknown in the United States? I've never seen them in a bookstore here, but I only go to one bookstore occasionally. I, I, I think part of this does go back, and part of as much as I hate to uh, admit has to do with a certain uh, disinterest in, in, in things that don't appear in the United States. I mean, to some extent, when you go back and look at um, the, the giants of science fiction, I'm thinking now again about some of the things I've been reading in Joe Walton's columns about the Hugo Awards. And you, you think of figures like... Asimov and Heinlein and mm-hmm. Herbert and, uh, and 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 yet Brian Aldiss, who in many ways has a body of work as impressive as as any 20th century writer, essentially, um, essentially disappeared from the American market. Not because his, his later works were not that uh, powerful. That's true, but um, I think one of the things that happened was after um, the 70s or 80s, and he turned more and more and more to literary fiction. Maybe he was writing the kind of thing that uh, American readers were less interested in. The Heliconia books, which we've talked about here more than once, um, were his masterwork and probably uh, and, and did get good editions in the United States, but they aren't, they aren't being read anymore. They aren't being talked about anymore. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas, whereas his American contemporaries of the same vintage are still being read and debated all the time. So I think there's, there's, there's something to be said about that. Uh, there's something to be said about the fact that uh, famously uh, influential Australian writers like George Turner, for example, never had any traction in the United States. Um, Peter Carey does, but Peter Carey is a literary bestseller writer rather than a science fiction writer. So maybe it is associated with John. fantasy writers have. Australian fantasy writers oh, are very Garth, successful. Garth, but, 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 yeah. I mean, yes, Garth, absolutely, 100% Garth. Right. But also, you know, Trudy Canavan, also Kim Wilkins and Kate Forsyth, and uh, Juliet Marillier has been very successful. Mm. Julian, Rubin, Julian Rubinstein, uh, writing as, name escapes me right now, that the Japanese-influenced fantasy that she wrote have been enormously successful. You know, so there's, there's been an array of, of Australian fantasy writers who've done very, very, very well uh, here and in the UK and in the United States. Uh-huh. Science fiction writers less so. You know, there have been some who've done moderately well, but none that I can think of really particularly off the top of my head that have really taken off. But it goes back to the question then: Is this when you say not taken off? Do you mean not taken off specifically in the United States or in the UK and the United in, States? In the, I think in the United States. I mean, the thing with the with there's something about the, the, just the simple fact that the American market is both historically the home market for for modern science fiction in many ways, yeah, and is also the biggest and most lucrative market in many ways in the English language. That's what makes it the target for everybody. Everybody wants to succeed there, and it doesn't. The, the, whilst the physical barriers, you know, the, the the cost of finding an agent, of mailing off a manuscript or whatever else, have come down. And whilst the short fiction world is very, very open and transparent now, there is a feeling that getting novel length work into print in the United States successfully and maintaining a career and a profile is particularly hard. If you're if you're from outside the United States, I think that's true. And uh, I, I, I guess my question now is, this was a it was a serious problem for many many decades. That, that there was a frankly um, chauvinistic bias among American readers. Uh, but then you had these odd things happening where writers. Uh, would have successful beginning careers in the United States and then taper off for some reason. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Brian Aldiss. To some extent, the same thing happened with Greg Egan. To some extent, the same thing has happened with, uh, um, oh, I don't know, Stephen Baxter. Uh, e- Egan's last couple of novels were, admittedly, they're, they're, they're strange novels and they're challenging novels. But in, in many ways, they're not any more challenging than he's always been. But it mm-hmm. seems to me that it, he, had a, he had an enormous impact for the first several years and the last several years uh, he's been published by increasingly small presses if at yeah, all and I'm, I'm a little puzzled I mean I, I find and I know Karen Burnham in her book uh, touches on this I find the dichotomy mm-hmm. increasingly between his short fiction and his longer fiction well yeah puzzling puzzling I mean he's written a novella for me that's, going, that's coming out under the title Perihelion Summer for Tor coming out mm-hmm. next year, which I think is terrific. I think everyone's going to love it. And it's persuading them, getting them to realize that this is not a analytical and intellectual text. 
that it's powerful and engaging and emotional, although it has a rigorous underpinning to it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know that Greg is capable of publishing fiction that doesn't have rigorous underpinning, you know, because but, the actual driving force behind this story is a, a perturbation of the Earth's orbit. Um, but it's how it impacts people that drives it. But as Karen also points out, and you may be referring to this, in his short fiction especially, there's extraordinary emotional, character-based, humane fiction, uh, which I think um, surprises people who expect, uh, you know, lists of equations and the sort of thing, sort of thing he does on Twitter, where he's putting these elaborate animated uh, illustrations of various kinds of equations. Uh, he's obviously very, very brilliant at being able to work that sort of thing out. But I think to some extent um, that has overshadowed his ability to write characters and his ability to write stylistically very emotional and, and powerful uh, uh, scenes. So I'm, 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 I, it sounds to me like this novella might might regain some of that for him because uh, the, the, the appeal of uh, his idea of fiction is limited to some extent to people who want to read fiction for ideas. And I, I think that to some extent he lost a good chunk of his readership by getting more and more involved in alternate physics, for example. Mm. Um, it, even though those novels yeah. actually do have very sympathetic characters in them. It's a really powerful story. It really is. It's, it's, it's very much about how you act morally under great duress. Hmm. And he has found a, an angle on it that is really, really intriguing. The actual setup, which is, which the setup is interesting. The fact that it kicks off what appears to, what is, what is an extended riff on, on dramatic climate change mm-hmm. uh, is intriguing. Uh, the setting is novel. Not, not as novel to me. It's set off coastal Western Australia and in around parts ah. of Perth, which cool. will probably mean nothing to the rest of the world and doesn't really need to. I mean, I, I think that sort of it could just as easily be the streets of San Diego or somewhere. Um, but he's done it really, really well. So I'm hoping people will pay attention to it. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but yeah, he's an example of someone where the way he was pack- his work was packaged and marketed, and yes, some of his choices to, to write quite intricate and what, feel, what felt like demanding work mm. led to a reduction in readership over time. Well, do you think that um, exposure like Tor.com, I mean, this is one of the things we've talked about before, the, the new renaissance of novellas to the extent that it makes books and stories more available. This is a way of reintroducing writers of, of sort of, uh, do you think writers can actually expand or recover audiences by appearing in these venues? And the reason I mentioned tour.com in specific in particular is because these are venues that don't demand the commitment of reading a novel, but yet bring the author back to our attention. I think if the author changes the kind of work they appear to be doing, I think they can. I mean, the great example right now is Martha Wells. That'll be... In other words, uh, an effective appearance online in the United States, and Tor.com is obviously one of the most prominent places you can appear online, could actually help uh, inject a certain amount of adrenaline into an author's career. 
I think it has the possibility of doing that. If it, if if the work is engaging, um, then uh-huh. absolutely. Um, I think that the team, I mean, this is obviously I'm, I have enormous conflicts of interest here. I'm totally embedded with the tour team. I love the people that I work with. I love the program, so I'm completely biased. So by all means, throw my credibility onto the truck on this. But I feel they do such a good job promoting and marketing, distributing, taking care in what they allow into the imprint that it has the ability to, yes. I mean, it doesn't always work. It worked for Martha Wells. It's yet to work for Gwyneth Jones, though I hope and wish it does, and there's a chance I hope someday we get to revisit publishing her because I love proof of concept and I love her work and I think it deserves to be widely, widely read. Um, And, you know, there are writers that it, 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 if it doesn't necessarily make their career, it riffs off it in a really interesting way. I mean, Sean and McGuire has done some very, very, very successful work for them. Um, Nydia Korofor's Binti is a a whole different kind of angle on her career, which has been vastly popular, you know? Yeah. Um, And, but it, it obviously doesn't always work. I mean, I think that a Cardi by Dave Hutchinson deserved to be on the Hugo ballot. I really, really liked it. It's a completely different kind mm-hmm. of thing to um, to the uh, Fractured Europe series, and yet it didn't seem to find the audience that I felt it deserved. And the packaging was gorgeous, so it wasn't that. And the story's really good, so I don't think it was that. There was something that just did not... Connect. That's happened sometimes. No, I, I, I think it does, and I think there are, there are various functions that uh, a venue like Tour.com. We're using that as uh, a kind of catch-all, but we could include other venues as well. Certainly, the major magazines. Uh, on the one hand, what I've thought of is writers I would not have heard of otherwise, and who don't really even have a novel out, like Kaya Shanti Wilson, becomes very visible to me because of Tour.com. This is somebody who appears to be a major voice. Uh, who basically begins with a short work. Ruth Ann Emrys is another one. So there are writers like this that I find absolutely uh, fascinating because I'm learning of them through, and, and Kelly Robson is certainly another one. Uh, so, so these are writers who I think uh, are able to begin their careers in, in a way that's a little bit different from what writers do, did in the past. The, the traditional science fiction way was you write a bunch of short stories for magazines and eventually build up a following uh, and maybe eventually sell a novella. Now you start in with a novella, which in all these cases we've been talking about, is conceived with the density of a novel. I'm going to play devil's advocate. And I'm going to okay. suggest to you that particularly, not so much the gorgeously produced paperbacks, but particularly with the digital copies of the Tor novellas, which often uh-huh. sit in the thirty to 50,000 word range, right? Yeah. That what it actually is, is something completely familiar. That what it is, is pitching mass market paperbacks. I was not going to, that's, that's, not, that's not the devil's advocate at all. I was going to make the same point later myself, had you not. Um, we looked at Andre, you look at Ace Doubles, uh, mm. which were in that, uh, range, uh, early stories, by, or early novels by Samuel R. Delaney, by Ursula Le Guin, by Andre Norton, uh, all were uh, published frequently by Ace in, 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 in that general realm. And they were widely available in drugstores, in supermarkets, in bookstores. In other words, they were available almost as ubiquitously as online is today. Today, that kind of mass market 
I, I, I'm surprised when I still even see a mass market paperback because the only place you'll see them uh, in the States anyway would be in a Barnes and Noble bookstore or possibly a newsstand at the airport or possibly a Target or Walmart store. So the only way to get the kind of exposure that you used to get in a mass market paperback is online these days. Mm, mm. Mass true. market paperbacks simply don't have that kind of distribution. I mean, I wish and I've spoken to books booksellers that I know about this, and I totally understand the practical and pragmatic realities that render it impossible. I right. wish that the tour novellas could go out into stores at the kind of prices that a mass market paperback go out, goes out at. I really do. Um, because, I mean, like the, the book that I'm holding up that I was waving you a minute ago, The God's Monsters and oh. the Lucky Peach by uh, Kelly Robson, which is a, what, 225-page book. Yeah. I mean, this is no different than half the paperbacks that I bought growing up. I mean, if I... Let me roll across. Absolutely. Pull uh, random off the shelf. Jack Dan's The Man Who Melted. Uh-huh. It was something 258 pages long. Not demonstrably thicker or... You know, I mean, slightly thicker than God's Monsters and Lucky Peach. You know, and this was back in its day a three dollar fifty paperback. So it would probably be I don't know what it'd be today, it'd be you know twelve dollars or something. Oh, I can yeah, and this is one of the things I've noticed over the years. And I can go back, being really really old, further than you can. When uh, a, 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 a paperback from from Signet would be one hundred and sixty pages long, and a paperback from Avon with a shorter trim size would be a hundred and um, no. Signet would be 192 pages and Avon would be 160 pages, which, as A.J. Budras once explained to me, was completely to do with the production facilities of the, of, the, of the printer. In other words, things fit into whatever space was available. And yeah. that meant that what we now think of as novellas uh, were being published as novels and were being called novels when they were a complete novel in this issue in the pulp magazines. Um, so, so you're absolutely right. There is a kind of renaissance it's not just a renaissance in the novella it's a re renaissance of the short novel the yeah. science fiction novel that doesn't have to try to be a blockbuster okay dog leg to the left because we're getting towards the end of our time and i actually don't mind if we r wind up a little early because sometimes we go on too long book mm. read in the last four weeks that you'd recommend to our readers that they should go out and seek and find and own and read and might love uh, let me tell you, uh, the, 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 this is going to be one that I'll be reviewing in Locus, and uh, it's Jeffrey Ford's Ahab's Return. Now, there are people who uh, admire Jeffrey Ford for being um, extremely witty and literate and uh, elusive and, uh, and, 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 and humane, and yet he began writing, uh, he, he's, he's, he's explored genre modes, mm -hmm throughout his career. And his recent uh, uh, no novella, um, uh, the, the Haunted House novella, the Twilight uh, Pariah, yeah. was, was his attempt to look at a kind of haunted house story from the point of view of character. What he's doing in Ahab's Return, and I want to plug this especially because people are afraid that if you haven't read Moby Dick, you won't be able to read a sequel to Moby Dick. This is not a sequel to Moby Dick. This is a novel in which Ahab survives and Ishmael survives and one, one other person survives. It's, a, it's an underground New York 
supernatural thriller. It involves the gangs of New York uh, in the 1850s. It involves uh, a, a, a spunky, powerful, uh, convincing uh, girl urch street urchin who, who seems to know everything. So it's, in, in other words, it's taking a lot of elements of, um, of thriller fiction, of supernatural fiction, a little bit of science fiction here and there, and putting them together in a story which is just an enormous amount of fun. And I think one of the things that people sometimes forget is that Jeffrey Ford's novels have always been fun. They've always been well-plotted. They've always been suspenseful. Portrait of Mrs. Charbuk is one example. Uh, um, uh, the, um, the Botchtown story uh, that uh, became The Shadow Year uh, is another example. So I sometimes think when I talk about writers that you and I both admire from mm -hmm. uh, Christopher Rowe and Andy Duncan and, and, and Jeff Ford. They're all very good fiction writers. They all play into aspects of American culture. And I sometimes talk to readers who feel a little bit intimidated because these are very smart literary writers. They all write stories that are enormous amounts of fun. Yeah. And I think what I would want to say about Ahab's Return is if you think this is going to be a heavy-duty metaphysical meditation on themes of Melville... It's not, except it is two or three levels down. It doesn't get in the way of the plot at all. So, coming to a bookstore near you, pre-orderable pre now, Ahab's Return, I believe Jeffrey Ford, who's actually off in hospital getting some surgery done now, and so best wishes for a speedy recovery. Best wishes for well. Jeff, absolutely. My pick for the moment, because mm -hmm. all I read is short fiction, uh, apart from sort of ducking out to read a Terry Pratchett book on the read a Terry Pratchett book the other week because I just needed to, is hmm. a thousand beginnings and endings, fifteen retellings of Asian myths and legends, edited by Ellen O and Elise Chapman for HarperCollins. Hmm. And so this fascinating, really really terrific original anthology brings together fifteen stories, obviously hence the subtitle that retell cl you know, classic myths. It has a description of the myth. It has Great stories by names that we know, by Alyssa Wong, by Du Bodard, by um, uh, Rahul Kanakia, Melissa De La Cruz, Cindy Pond, and others, and some we, that we are, you know, I'm less familiar with, uh, bringing together myths from you know, the Philippines, from China, from uh, in parts of India, from Korea, from Vietnam. And it's a really interesting, varied, smart, really well-done anthology of myth and fairy tale. Uh, and I strongly recommend everybody seek it out. That sounds absolutely uh, fascinating. This book is already out, or is it out shortly? It's out any minute. Um, Colleen Mondor, because it comes out through a YAM, uh -huh. has reviewed it for the magazine for which we work, Locus, who um, are, you can find at www.locusmag.com. You can subscribe, you can buy an issue, you can just randomly give them money uh, out of charity because they're charitably themed. And we should mention that the Locus Awards are coming up in about, oh, less than a month, I guess, a couple of weeks. Uh, I Unfortunately, you and I won't be there, but once again, this is a major, uh, I, I think a major award which is voted on by readers, and it's always fascinating to me to see what the, what the Locus Award winners will be, so we'll keep an eye out for that as well. But we're about to hit a period of, you know, sort of choppy, choppy recording, Gary, uh, through basically my, you know, my, my planning. Um, obviously, we, we disappeared there for a month or so with really almost no explanation. We've come back with a couple of episodes. And now, well, I'm going off on holidays. 
So I'll be off the air, certainly. I may or may not be around next weekend. That's kind of possible and in a way for a couple of weekends. Mm-hmm. As I see, you know, sort of parts of Ireland with my family. Going back, so this is your homeland. Sort of thing, yes. Sort of getting on little tiny plane seats and zipping off the other side of the planet. The first of three trips, Gary. This year. Three trips this year. I'm I'm envious and not envious. I don't. Yeah, me too. (laughs) uh, I I, I don't look forward to the actual mechanics of trips. As far as I know, this summer, I'll be going to ReaderCon in about a month, and after that, I'll be seeing you in San Jose in August. Yes, and actually, another book I'd recommend, just just sort of slip it in, uh, I will be staying with our dear friend Ellen Clagis, uh, who has a new book out, which is being... Out of left field. Being loved and adored around the world, and if you love smart, beautifully written fiction that deals with young people and baseball and other things, this could be the book for you. That's one I'm looking forward to myself. So we'll say, we'll say hello to Ellen when you're on your travels. Uh, oh, you won't be you won't be seeing her this summer. You'll be seeing her this fall. Well, I'll be seeing in her August. in August. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yes. Okay. August in is what, getting close, isn't it? It's like eight weeks away, Gary. My goodness. <laughs> or whatever. It is. It's like none of this is far. Sorry, readers, that we're now sort of basically sharing our or listeners that we're basically sharing our calendars. But, you know, when you realize that sort of here we are on the 17th of June, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven or eight weeks till Worldcon, and then another eight weeks after that to World Fantasy. So, yeah. Meanwhile, any of our listeners who happen to be showing up at ReaderCon in, uh, in, in July, I'll be there, and both of us will be there for San Jose's Worldcon and Baltimore's World Fantasy. We might actually sort of fulfill our oft-stated intention to make ourselves accessible to listeners if they want to and, 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 and circulate or something. We've done that. We've, we've, we've shown up at the bar asking listeners to show up, and they, 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 they flee from us. They hide under the bar. They hide maybe, behind tables. They pretend we're not there. Those, like, we should often do one of those walk with the stars things at Worldcon where you get up at 9 o'clock in the morning and, and wander around aimlessly. That's one of the reasons I've never signed up for one of those or volunteered to do one of those things. I'm not interested. At nine o'clock in the morning, I don't want to walk with anybody. Oh, I'll bring whiskey. All right. I'll go get whiskey. Ireland. Mm. All right. Anyway, till then, it's been good talking to you, and I will talk to you maybe next week or some other time later. Sometime when your schedule permits, I'll be here until July or something. But until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.